0: This is Tom Koslick, the head of research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This is the ninth episode of our Politics and Finance Hilltop podcast series for 2021. During these discussions, we consider topics that intersect the world of politics and finance. During this series, we consider themes that, if they are common, We do not think that the angle we are discussing is going to be all that common. And why else would you be listening if this was just the same old, same old? And today, we have a highly qualified guest from one of the major Wall Street ratings firms to discuss specifically a forward-thinking way to look at topics that you guessed it, intersect the worlds of politics and finance. We are now recording this Thursday, July 15th. This is just two days after our guest published a report Affirming his firm's, which is Fitch Ratings, credit rating on the United States at AAA, also with a negative outlook. In our last podcast with Chris Icavello from the American Securities Association, we focused on the political landscape in Washington, D.C., fiscal policy, and the potential for another massive infrastructure package. This week, we are going to include the world of Washington, D.C. politics again, but this time around a little different flavor. With our special guest from Fitch Ratings, Charles Seville. Charles, thank you very much for joining us and thank you especially for joining us on such short notice. Thanks very much for having me. Charles is a senior director at Fitch Ratings and he's the co-head of the America's Sovereign Ratings Group in New York. Before joining Fitch, Charles was an economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit and I felt a little foolish yesterday because before I saw his resume I asked him during our pre-interview call if he read The Economist newspaper and I you know, then came to find out that he worked there. Well, now I know. Charles, we are very lucky that you were able to take some time out today to discuss the rating commentary you published uh, on July 13th. And before we get to this r- most recent rating report, I was wondering if you could set the table for us a little bit and describe the outlook action Fitch took last year. Please correct me if I have this incorrect, but uh, last year was when Fitch assigned the negative outlook to the United States? Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, So July last year, well, we actually reviewed the US twice last year. um, Mm -hmm. And the second review was in July. And we affirmed the AAA rating, but revised the outlook to negative. Um, Just a word on what that actually means. So an outlook typically lasts two years. We try to resolve it within two years. So that negative outlook really reflected the the pandemic shock and the big um, additional indebtedness that the U.S. took on to deal with that. I mean, the, we think that the policy response was very large, swift, very effective. Um, so that actually now the the economy is slightly larger than we expected it to be pre-pandemic, um, and of course that response had big spillovers for the rest of the world. So that's very positive, but that the big cost really was. Um, the, the additional indebtedness, and just bearing in mind that the US is already the most indebted AAA country. So, mm-hmm. when we look at general government debt, that's debt of the federal government and local and state governments, um, it's now over 120% of GDP, whereas before the crisis, it was
0: about 100% of GDP. So, are you able to say whether or not the uh, six plus trillion of fiscal policy that lawmakers took? in response to COVID? Are you able to say whether or not uh, there's going to be a neutral impact because of that uh, that comeback that you were just talking about?
1: Well, obviously in the short term, it, it helped stabilize the economy and um, support consumption and uh, stopped a lot of businesses from going bankrupt and so on. Um, yeah, I think the, the medium term issue is, is really about um, yeah how sustainable the debt is at this higher level because it seems unlikely that the US will significantly reduce its debt load and we, usually we're talking about the debt ratio here so mm-hmm. you know debt to to gdp um the gdp will probably grow faster than the debt this year actually but um sort of after we get over this initial rebound from from the pandemic um and sort of driven by the the policy stimulus this year then I think that that's what interests us
0: most is where the the debt ratio heads um, after this. So I understand that really what caused Fitch Fitch to release this July 13th report was that it was and should probably be characterized as just regular surveillance. Uh, Is that correct? Yes. So
1: um, every credit, every sovereign credit, we have to review once a year. Okay. Go through a full committee process and review, and we'll publish a press release. So, having done that in July last year, that's that's really why we did it again okay. this year in the same same month.
0: So, what struck me as being uh, different was the section focused on governance in the U.S., where, uh, and I'm quoting, uh, "It was written governance is a weakness relative to the AAA median for the U.S." Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Uh, the US's you know governance uh, scores and and maybe even just generally the World Bank governance indicators that you use when scoring the US and other sovereign ratings sure so um, we have a sovereign
1: rating model that is entirely quantitative and the biggest part of that around twenty percent of of the data that goes into that or has a 20% weight, I should say, of, of the World Bank governance indicators, which are available for every country that we rate. Um, it's not perfect, but it is independent. It's done on a consistent basis across countries. And it's a kind of starting point for us to measure the strength of institutions and governance, which we think, well, we find it's very highly correlated with uh creditworthiness. I mean, typically rich countries have better credit ratings and more credit worthy, and they have better institutions. Um, And, you know, the US is no exception. So looking at um, looking across the whole rated universe, the the US has very strong governance. But when you're comparing it to the very small club of countries that are rated AAA, uh, governance has always been somewhat weaker, Um, that largely reflects a weakness in one of the six pillars of the governance indicators, which is uh, political stability and absence of violence. And I think, you know, this we've seen this in other countries that it can reflect um, the terrorist episodes and, and phenomena like that. So it's not entirely related to domestic governance. But even when you look at the other pillars, uh, it is somewhat below. There's been a very mild deterioration um, in the last couple of years. So yeah, that, that's just a bit of background, by way of background, on the on the governance indicators and and how we think about governance, uh, sort of in our rating
0: process. So it sounds as though the U.S. governance indicators have always been maybe a little weaker relative to the medians, or and and it's not. And it, it you said that they've weakened a little more in recent years, uh, but you also wrote in this report this week. And again, I'm quoting the failure of the former president to concede the election and the events surrounding the certification of the results of the presidential election in Congress in January have no recent parallels in other highly rated sovereigns. I'm wondering if there are examples that you can draw on where other executives or presidents have not conceded an election and or uh, we've seen you know, kind of resulting kind of the violence like we saw on January 6th, or I should say the potential violence towards other elected representatives. I'm really, really interested to see and or hear, I should say, where the U.S. is compared to the AAA median on that one, because as you're mentioning, it sounds as though these types of events might occur in other countries or other lower rated countries, but not in AAA countries and certainly not in the U.S. I was wondering if you could break that down for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. When you're just looking at the, the AAA countries, it's, it's. I don't think there are any other parallels. Looking at highly rated countries, um, you know, in the EU uh, we have Poland, which is rated in single A category, where we have some concerns about rule of law that we've been talking about, where some, um, some of the arrangements appear to be in conflict with some of the uh, EU um, principles, so that they've come into conflict with, with the EU there on on some um, issues. Um, but in other high, and of course, we've seen episodes of unrest in in other countries. I mean, we had the, the Yellow Jackets, Gilets jaunes protests in, in France, for example. I mean, that's a, that's a double-A category, sovereign. Um, we've certainly seen those types of phenomena, but I think what's different about what we saw in the US is really touches on the, the core of the, the democratic system where you know this relies on norms it's not just a bunch of rules it relies on norms and people's adherence to those and, and belief in in the system. Uh, and I think what is a little concerning is that you had not only one sort of actor refusing to, to to sort of adhere to the, the norms but also there appear to be quite a lot of people who who agree with him. Um, and you know, that, that I think is, yeah, a potential, potential concern if if you have either side or both sides of the the process starting to the the, the political spectrum starting to, to doubt or, or question the the system. And the U.S. of course has a very well a unique constitution, um, the electoral college. All of these features are sort of pretty different from what we see elsewhere in the world. Um, and the way the, the separation of powers in the U.S. is also quite different. So, Congress is is extremely powerful. I see, the president has a lot of authority over lots of areas. But you know, when we're talking about taxing and spending. Um, you know, Congress is really in the driving seat in
0: in those types of decisions. Uh, right. So and just and, and just two yeah. weeks ago, uh, the Economist newspaper, uh, in, in an article titled "The Real Risk to America's Democracy." Uh, really broke this down, broke down exactly what you're describing in that uh, there have been fail-safe mechanisms built into the American elections. And this is what it is the, the Economist wrote. Number one, the first principle is that the loser concedes. The second is the integrity of local elections. And third is, the third fail-safe is the courts. But what you're describing is, is exactly that, a breakdown in some of those fail-safe mechanisms. And I'm even going to add on top of that to elaborate one of the things that you were just describing as well with some numbers of even now in you know, the, the polling numbers that I'm going to quote are from June of 2021, not from November or December of last year. But just to update everyone on where the political winds are blowing right now, a morning consult and political poll from the middle of June reported that almost three out of four, or 74% of Republican voters support state level support to review the 2020 presidential election results. And one out of two of those GOP voters believe those potential reviews will uncover information that could change the election's outcome. So Charles, how is it that Fitch Ratings is interpreting not only the failure to concede but the fact that the former president is continuing to run on and push that what is being co- called in the comment in the in the press the big lie that the election was stolen yeah i think we see it as symptomatic of these trends that we've already
1: observed which is about i think political polarization a lack of bipartisanship in a system that requires a certain amount of bipartisanship to work um And I think all of these phenomena just deepen that, make that more of a more of an issue, um, which is, you know, a concern. I think, you know, the other issue is does this have a value? Does um, very strong governance uh, have a value in its own right uh, in terms of a rating? Because you you could say, well, when's this when does the rubber hit the road? I mean, are investors going to flee the US because of their concerns about political stability, or are, will people not invest, will growth be lower? And I don't think, you know, we are at that point, it would be it'd be very difficult to to make the case that we're, we're at there this point. in any sense. Well, but, one of the things, you know, we're at things... the very highest raising level. So, you know, at, at some points it may become appropriate to signal that yes, this, uh, that some of the, the governance concerns would eventually impact on on, you know, some of the variables that we can really measure.
0: And I'd imagine that most people didn't see the debt ceiling showdown coming that we saw uh, in the summer of 2011, right? So to me, that seems like it's an example from history uh, about 10 years ago anyway, that a situation like this might evolve into where to remind some of the folks or some of the listeners who were not familiar with what happened in the summer of 2011, there was a A a part of Congress that, in effect, held the extension of the debt ceiling hostage uh, until the kind of end of right up to the right up to the end of the deadline of the end of July of 2011. Uh, That (laughs) makes me wonder, and it makes me ask this question, Charles. You know, the most recent debt ceiling limit suspension is up for extension at the end of this July. Do you foresee a game of chicken in Congress like we saw 10 years ago this time around? Or how do you think that that could play out? I, I don't this time. Okay. I don't think there's a,
1: a faction in Congress that really is looking to, to weaponize this. I think it's always something that is preferable to get done on a bipartisan basis um, because neither party really wants to attach its name to a, a lifting of the, the debt limit or um, you know either a dollar amount or, or a suspension. So I, th- I think to that extent, it's always going to be difficult, but I don't see it as being particularly difficult this year. Um, I think actually, so far, we don't really have enough information on when the so-called X date will fall. So when it is that Treasury really needs to start borrowing again, because they can use extraordinary measures that yield maybe 300 billion. Um, but, you know, it depends, obviously, um, in, in um, sort of capacity. Uh, to, to spend without incurring borrowing, but given that you know the government is still spending more than it normally spends, um, you know we we don't. I think the, the treasury also went into this with a with a big uh, cushion of liquidity. So um, yeah, I think there's there's quite a lot of variability over in terms of sort of when when the X day would be. Mm-hmm. But it is something that we've taken into account in previous uh, rating actions. So in two thousand and thirteen, we actually put the U.S. on on negative watch. Um, when we were particularly concerned about the, the debt limit, and you know, we would also we'd also taken
0: a similar action in in 2011. Mm-hmm. So, do you envision a scenario where political influences like those you wrote about could act as a roadblock to overall U.S. economic growth? Like, are you fearful that, uh, like a that the Delta variant or another COVID variant increases to the point where it becomes a national or not just a regional or state issue as Is it? um appeared to be a week or two ago but even it seems every day that seems to be spreading i mean are there these types of influences that could really stall or like i just asked i suppose like a a roadblock to the growth projections for the u.s um well
1: in terms of our growth projections i mean the u.s has rather stronger sort of potential growth rates of, of advanced countries it's got um See a lot of capital. It's got a slightly faster-growing labour force uh, than other countries, so it, you know it has a lot going for it in terms of growth. But I think see the potential is is slightly slowing for reasons of, of demographics and so on. Um, and I don't think that the governance is going to sort of impinge on that, particularly in, <laughs> in the short term. Um, in terms of COVID and the pandemic, um, I think you know the higher the vaccination rate, the weaker the link between. Um, infections and serious illness, and the, the need for lockdowns. Um, but you know, it it would be foolish to, to write off a, a possibility where you know we mm-hmm. we're going two steps forward, one step back. I mean, the 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 path out of this is not necessarily a, a completely straight line, uh, and you know we've seen that in in Europe where the the some of the variants have, have caused um, you know, some. Uh, restrictions to be reimposed. I think ha- having said that, if you look at the, the policy stringency index, then the US is currently lower and less stringent and has fewer restrictions than basically anywhere in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. That's partly because it's um you know where where they are with the virus. I mean the EU has caught up with the in terms of vaccination, um or some some countries have, but but not all have.
0: So let's end this discussion on a relatively positive note. I was wondering if you could outline for us uh, what you're assuming the U.S. GDP growth is going to be, you know, this is kind of your base case for this year and next year. And if there are any if there's anything uh, specific that you think that you could see as uh, a influence that could cause that not to happen.
1: Sure. We expect the economy to grow 6.8 percent this year. So bear in mind this is a year on year comparison, so it doesn't necessarily mean the economy is going to be growing at sort of annualized pace of six point eight percent for the for the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um but um you know what we've seen is uh, great strength in terms of goods consumption, personal consumption has been very strong, um services uh, is, is also starting to to come back as well. Um and then next year we we expect three point nine percent growth. Um, the same sort of caveat applies, but you know, I think we're, we're still seeing quite a lot of strength. But, of course, next year, we won't have the scale of fiscal uh, policy uh, support that we had this year and then last. Um, so, you know, we're not going to have... Households will not be receiving the same scale of transfers, but equally, uh, people's wage income should be holding up or, or increasing. Um, and in terms of unemployment, that is still... 5.9% I think the sort of higher than it was pre-pandemic where we were getting into sort of between, well, I think 3.5%. Um, so there's still a gap there in terms of employment and we do expect that to be, to be made up. But in terms of output, essentially we got a, a lot of a sort of productivity jump, output came back without all the jobs coming back. Um, so fr- from here on in, I think we get slightly more gradual increases in output and then then the labor market um, recovers gradually and the unemployment rate comes down.
0: So what I was wondering about is if there is if as the economy comes back to full employment, if that's going to help create a floor underneath uh, overall output. Um,
1: To some extent, yes. Um, You know, we don't know if all the jobs are going to come back and in the same places and in the same industries. I mean,
0: so there could be some structural changes to the labor market.
1: Yes, I think so. Some people, and some people may decide they don't want to go back to the sectors where they were employed before. Yeah. So I, th- I think there will be some, some changes.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Charles. I think that that was a, a great deep dive into uh, what you're seeing as far as the, the political landscape for the U S and the potential impact on the, US sovereign credit rating. Um, hopefully we'll be able to have you come back and and update us uh, after uh, we see potentially what happens with infrastructure and or uh, things leading up to the uh, 2022 midterms. Again, Charles, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. No, thank you, Tom. This is Tom Kozak from Hilltop Securities. Thanks everyone for joining us. And until next time, uh, have a good day. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks, a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, you can view our Hilltop Securities Economic and Municipal Commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal-commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic-commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply, and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas 75201, phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation.